Welcome to Coding Codices. Now in our third season, we're here with a veritable rock star of oh the manuscripts and social media <laughs> outreach world, Dot Porter, who is many things, among them a curator at the Kislak Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm here with Caitlin Postal. I'm Eileen Malcolm, and we are members of the Digital Medievalist Postgraduate Committee. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here, and I'm excited to talk to both of you. Well, we're so glad to have you. I know that you have done so many things with your time as a scholar, uh, and your work is just so compelling. But we're going to start, I think, with this call, which is uh, one of your older projects. Um, we'd love to know a little bit, like, how did you come up with the idea for it? What are some some ways that it can be applied for listeners who might want to use this great tool? Maybe you could explain the tool too, because I sure didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so this call is a project that I guess we probably started it in 2013 or 2014, because it was pretty soon after I came to Penn. So I came to Penn in 2013. But this call is a project that's around modeling and visualizing the physical collation of manuscripts. That I'm talking specifically about manuscripts. Printed books also have collation, but it's slightly different because with printed books, you're, you tend to have larger sheets of paper that are folded multiple times and then cut. Most manuscripts are what are called folio manuscripts, which is you have sheets, sheets of paper or parchment that are sort of layered and then folded once to make little booklets that are called choirs. The choirs are sewn together and that's how you make your book. So you might have a, a book where every choir was made by layering four sheets and then you fold it, which gives you eight leaves and then you sew them together. And so then you can count out if there are 64 leaves, then there's eight choirs of eight, right? Cause eight times eight is 64. Um, but what tends to happen in practice is you'll have choirs, some choirs maybe were made with three sheets, and some were made of two, and some are made of six, and some are made of eight. Leaves get added and leaves get taken away, choirs get taken apart, and then put back together again. And so before I came to Penn, I had been working in digital humanities doing what we used to call image-based electronic editions, which are now just sort of digital editions but with the, with the image focus. So getting digital images of manuscripts and building projects around them. And so it's kind of funny because I sort of started, although I trained as a medievalist, so I have an MA in medieval studies um, and I also have an MS in library science. So I was always very interested in the book. I got my start doing like text editions. Like I did a lot of TEI and this kind of thing. But as I got sort of more into it, I got more interested in the book as an object. And even at that point, I was sort of interested in how what I was doing with this book on a computer was different from what the book was like in its physical life. And at that point, I didn't have a lot of experience working with physical manuscripts. So I read books about them. And one book that was that turned out to be sort of really important for, for this was it's a book by uh, Ben Withers about the illustrated Old English Hexateuch, which is Cotton Claudius B4 at the British Library. And it is an Old English translation or version of the Pentateuch or the Hexateuch, which is like the first eight books of the Bible. And it's illustrated. So almost every page of this manuscript has an illustration on it, but not all of them are complete. And he, so he wrote this whole book about 
the creation of this manuscript and how by looking at which choirs have more or less completed um, illustrations, you can sort of tell about how the book was made. And I was so fascinated by this, but I had a lot of trouble sort of visualizing it because I didn't have, obviously I didn't have the book in front of me. I'd never seen this book in my life in person. The book did come with a CD so I could like take my CD-ROM and I could see the images, but I had a real trouble sort of visualizing in my head how the structure worked. And I thought to myself at that time, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to like visualize this and to be able to connect all of this data. And he does, he really does a great job in this book in terms of like there are tables and things to sort of show it, but I wanted something all together. So I came here and one of the first things that I did um, when I, you know, talking to Will Knoll, who was the director of the Schoenberg Institute for Manuscript Studies, which was the group that I sort of came to work with, um, was like, I, this is what I wanna do. And he was so funny. I remember him saying to me, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. <laughs> but he was like, but I hired you. So because I thought you'd do good work. So I guess I'll let you do it and we'll see what happens. And <laughs> now here we are, like 10 years later, we've got, you know, we've got this great software. So I did, I, I, I worked with uh, Doug Emery here who um, did a, a lot of the early development. We also had a couple of other developers who worked with him. Um, Dennis Mullen, who has since retired, but he did, he worked with me really closely about like, how do we visualize the way that the output is going to look? You know, the, the version of the software that we have now, which is called VC Editor, actually was built on a tool called Viz Codex, which was built at the University of Toronto. We were working hard here on the Bibliotheca Philadelphiensis project. So we got this money from Clear to digitize manuscripts in Philadelphia. And so there's this period between 2016 and 2019 when we were very heavily like trying to get all these manuscripts digitized. And so we weren't really thinking about this call. And around that time, Alex Gillespie at the Old Books New Science Lab at the University of Toronto got funding from the Mellon Foundation and her group actually developed this tool called Viz Codex, which looks very, very similar to VC Editor. And, and they were like using the date, the Viz called data model to do this. And then when we were ready to sort of get back to it, they gave us the code and let us use the code. And so, and now we've got VC Editor. So now anybody who wants to can go to the VC Editor website and you can input your data about how your manuscripts are put together you can add the contents, you can add, you know, if there are miniatures or anything like that, you can sort of map them in there and then you can create this visualization. I think one thing that's interesting to me is the, the way that you talked about how you moved into this type of work, right? I think that's kind of familiar to a lot of us. We start working on textual editions and then we get really interested in the, in the book object and then we want to work with those book objects. That's not the question that I have though. I just wanted to remark that like, that's a, a really familiar um, path. I'm wondering if you know of or have thought about any exciting implementations of the VC editor tool that might not be traditional in the sense of thinking about the structure of a manuscript book object. Part the, my, my initial response is like, well, no, like, because the whole thing is about the, like, 
the whole thing of, of VC editor and, and it is about the structure, but there are, I think, creative ways um, to use it. And I have some examples of that. It's still about the manuscript structure, but for example, uh, Lisa Fagan Davis, um, who is a, I think, a pretty well-known, if we know who she is. She's in episode two of Coding Codices. <laughs> episode two of Coding Codices. She's great. And she um, she has a long-term project that she's been working on, I think, for many, many years, of um, reconstructing the Beauvais missile, which is this was a missile that was taken apart. It was just in the news recently. There was somebody from Maine, I think, who bought a leaf for like $75 at a garage sale or something. And it turned out it was one of the leaves of the missile. And so as part of her reconstruction project, she is also reconstructing the collation of it. And she uses VC editor as the way to sort of reconstruct the collation of this book that once existed, but never exists any, you know, doesn't exist anymore. But I've also, so I've, I've been thinking about books of hours, you know, in the 15th century, when you wanted a book of hours, you would not go to the book of hours store and like buy one off the shelf, like you go to a bookstore <laughs> today, right? Like you'd be like, I want a book of hours. And so you go to a scriptorium of some sort and you would say, I would like a book of hours, please. And they, and they would say, okay, so it's a modular, they probably wouldn't use that word. They'd say, <laughs> what would you like in your book of hours? And so you sort of pick, you have the um, hours of a virgin because that's what you always have in a book of hours and you have a calendar. Um, and then the other things you could sort of, you know, your bespoke book, your bespoke book. And then you get to pick how much gold you want and how much decoration and what script you use and all of this stuff. Years ago, I did not like book. I thought books of hours were like fancy pants books for art historians. And then I started really looking at them. And now I like can't shut up about them because I think they're just, just the neatest thing. There's a ubiquity to them, right? Like so many people in the Middle Ages would have access to or have their own in a way that other books of the time were just not as readily available. Makes them interesting. Yeah, yeah. they are interesting and that they're all different and that they were personalized. Like Kate Rudy has done just incredible work looking at how books of hours, how they were made, so the modular part of it, but also how they were personalized both during that process and also after um, and how they were used. So she's done dirt on books so you could see like which pages have been opened the most and like kissing like if there's like a picture of jesus and his face is all messed up because somebody was kissing it like these kinds of things which are just an incredible sign of use and i know later in the later we're going to be talking about fandom stuff but this is this is already getting into that because this mm -hmm. is that like jesus the sort fandom. of the jesus <laughs> fandom right like the love and how it's shown on this physical object like books of hours are like great for that so so there's that and then there's also this tendency um to for people both in the middle ages and after you know the way that they used books taking taking them apart and then putting them back together in various ways, you might have three books and you take the pieces that you want and put them put them together to make a new book and maybe you throw out the other ones or you cut the pages and you put them in, you know, put them in bindings or whatever. This all got in my head and I was like, well, what if I made my own book of hours using bits and pieces from books of hours from these libraries in Philadelphia where we digitize these manuscripts from? And because I'm all about the physical collation, 
what if I did it as though I had the books in front of me and I was cutting the pieces out. So I'm like actually following the choir structure of these. So if there's a, a set of prayers that I want from a book of hours and it's from the first three leaves in a choir, I have to account for all of the other leaves that I'm not taking. Like I'm like I'm at literally like cutting it out. So I did it in VC editor and I basically picked these. I just went in and I was like, oh, that looks pretty. And I'm like, oh, that's nice, you know. So then I had my little book of hours. It took me a couple of hours to do that. I got everything printed. Thank you, Staples in uh, Springfield, Pennsylvania, who got my order and just was great. I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> we should, we should send it to them, Staples. Yeah. And, uh... You can add them when you, when you, when you post it. <laughs> So, so now I have, I, I, I bought a sew. I never made a book before. I am not an artist. I am not a bookbinder. I am nothing like this, but I got, I got a book thing and I watched YouTube tutorials and I made my text block. So I have this, it's really weird, right? Cause it's all of the choirs are different sizes, um, but it's there. And then I'm working with um, the folks over in our makerspace. We are going to, 3D print boards. And we're going to have this 3D printed boards attached and probably I, I think I want to do some kind of leather cover. So which again is like this combination of like digital, physical, medieval, but not really, you know. I think this would make for a, a really interesting pedagogical application, right? So if you if you were teaching a, a class, like a manuscript studies class, and you wanted to have students use VC Editor to kind of put together their own miscellany or their own book of hours and think about how what are the pieces that you would want from existing ones that that like that by itself would be like one cool assignment. And then you also get into the uh, the making portion if you're doing any kind of hands on work or if you're if people are really interested in curatorial work and they're like, okay, and now, now that I've put it together, now I want to do exactly what you're describing. Um, or maybe even like a, like a pen dream lab version of that as a course would be so cool just for that. I don't know, the medieval meets modern. I'm just really into. Yeah. But a sh maybe a shorter answer to your question is I do, I think that there is a lot of potential in VC editor for this kind of exercise. Like I love the idea of a classroom exercise where it's like, okay, pretend that you are a scholar in, you know, 1490 and you have access to these books and you want to compile your own miscellany with the things that you're interested in. Taking the physic, you know, the physicality into account, how would you do that? Use VC editor to do that. Like I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, although recently I've just been using it to make models of the manuscripts from Penn's collection. Um, because another thing that I really want to do is make this sort of visualization ubiquitous for, for records. It is, you know, best practice or common practice to include collation formulas in catalog records. And collation formulas, even if you know what they are and what how they work, they're not real easy to read unless you have the book in front of you, it doesn't actually tell you a whole lot. And there's just stuff that you cannot, that just, you can't put in a formula. They, they just don't work like that. And so having a way to make a visualization available 
in a, a catalog. I think that would be amazing if that be, if it became a thing that okay we have a formula but we also have um, this. And I'm going to go on a little tangent because um, anybody who like works works in a library like in a cataloging part is, is immediately going to be like well okay so how do you show that in the catalog? So the way that we're doing that at Penn, I do a screen print of the diagram from BC Editor. So I open BC Editor, I do a screen print, and then I save I save that both as a PDF and as a PNG image, along with other data. I'm making records in our institutional repository, which at Penn is called Scholarly Commons. Then I'm working with the cataloger who puts a link in the record to Scholarly Commons. And I don't know how many people are really gonna want to see it, but I love knowing that it's there if people want to. I think, you know. I mean, every time I look at a book, I pull up the records to sort of see how it's put together. So I can see that being really useful for scholars. I hope so. People won't know that they want it until it's an option. And then when they realize that they have it, they'll be like, why doesn't everybody do this? We can definitely talk about all of your projects until end of day. And I hope we do get to come back to that toward the end of this interview. But I was wondering if we could zoom out for a minute and talk about your personal journey toward your current work. You mentioned before that you hadn't worked with a lot of manuscripts in person mm-hmm. earlier on. And we, we tend to ask these kinds of questions because a lot of our listeners are grad students and mm-hmm. sort of thinking about how they might place themselves within the field going forward. Right. I hadn't worked with manuscripts very much before um, before I came to Penn. So I started out, I actually started out studying church music, which now seems like really weird. Like, why did I ever think I was going to be a church musician? Um, but I changed, I changed my mind about halfway through my sophomore year. I was like, this is not, this is not for me. And then I, I majored in medieval studies as an undergrad. Um, and I still had no idea. My whole career has, my whole life has been just me not having any idea what I wanted to do until recently. Like now I know what I want. That's good to hear. Yeah. It's <laughs> hours now. And then I, and then I went to Western Michigan University and I did my master's in medieval studies. And that's when I started getting into books. I worked in the special collections library with Tom Amos. That was when Tim Graham was there. So I took paleography and codicology. And then I went to library school and I really thought I was like, I'm going to be an archivist. I'm going to be a rare books librarian. Um, I'm going to be, you know, a manuscripts curator, maybe if I'm really lucky. But even in, I was doing archives track when I came in. And even then, like my first semester, it was like, you're going to learn HTML and you're going to learn about metadata and you're going to learn about, and I was just like, totally, wow. Like I knew that there was digital stuff because there had been the electronic Beowulf came out when I was, I think right as I was graduating college. So it was there my first years, you know, in grad school. So there was Electronic Bail of the Canterbury Tales Project. There was Pierce Plowman Archive. And I was just like, I can make that. Maybe you can tell, like having the conversation that we've had so far, I have like a lot of creative energy. And and that cre- it really appealed to that creative energy part of me. Um, and so when I finished my degree, when I graduated from library school, I applied to a whole bunch of different jobs. 
Um, but I ended up going to work with Kevin Kiernan um, at the University of Kentucky, working on one of these sort of like dream projects. And I got to I got to see actually the Beowulf manuscript, which is pretty cool. When I was um, like without glass, without glass, yeah, it was wow. It was doing some more, um, doing some. It was we were in the in London at the same time, and he was doing some more. What does it smell like? It. I didn't get that close. <laughs> it was in a, He was he burnt. was like under a camera. It doesn't burnt. <laughs> it oh, they didn't let you lick it. <laughs> no, they didn't let me lick it. Very sad. But I did get. To, I was in the room with it. I was like, oh look, there it is. So and I re and I actually remember thinking that's small. <laughs> like everything with me and like these books is like the this like how the camera lies about the size of it. So I worked with him, and then he retired, and then I worked with Ross Scaife. Um, who was a classicist, but I always thought, I always considered myself a medievalist, you know, and then, and then I went to Ireland, and I was in Ireland for a little over a year, um, and I did metadata on a lot of pro different projects, including a couple of medieval projects, and then I came back, and I was uh, at the Indiana University Bloomington, and that was when I sort of made a pivot from digital humanities to digital libraries. So I went from being in a DH situation where I was working on projects that were about topics and themes um, to being responsible for collections in a place. But when I got the chance to come to Penn to work in the special collections department, I absolutely was like, wow, that would be amazing because I still get to do all of that digital stuff that I love. Plus, I get access to the physical collection. So, yeah, how does that work on a sort of day-to-day -day basis? What's your daily life at the Schoenberg Institute or at the Kislak Center been like? So it's it's changed over time. So I have been here 10 years, and it's changed, especially with, like, COVID um, changed a lot of stuff. Um, but uh, before, you know, it sort of goes in, goes in sort of things. So when I first came... It was very much, um, there was a lot of work on the actually VizCall. Um, I started uh, the program to make um, video orientations, which you have actually made That's a couple correct. of couple video of astronomy manuscripts. <laughs> a couple of astronomy <laughs> manuscripts. This is great. So these are like, you know, two or three minute videos, short, sort of just the camera and the hands and talking about the book. Um, and there are, there are also like the, actually the, VC editor models, the coalition models, they are put in the scholarly commons repository and then attached to our records. And the reason that I wanted to do that, it's all, this is all about like my big plan to get the physical aspects of the manuscript as part of the record. During my first week on the job, I had been looking at in the collection, there is a pretty early uh, 11th century, I think, um, gloss psalter. And it, I had been looking at it online and I thought this is the most interesting thing. So gloss psalter, you've got the psalter text in the middle of the page and you have these glosses written all around it. And I was like, that looks really cool. I want that to be the first book that I see when I, when I arrive. And I could, like, it was amazing. Like I filled in this thing and they're like, brought it to my office and I'm like, what do you mean my office? You know? <laughs> um, and but the thing that I remember being the most like impressed with about the book was how small it was. 
it's like tiny. It's like the size of a postcard, maybe not quite that small, but it's very, very small, right? And what it means is that the writing that looks small, when you look at the digital image, is like tiny. And I was like, somebody wrote this. It was like one scribe. Like, how did you do that? So it was all of these things. It was like how the camera lies, the humanity of the person who wrote it, and then all of the people who used it. And you get that sense much more from the sort of physical object. And I'm still making these videos. I stopped for a while for a few years, I think, because of the Bibliophily project. That was the next thing, is we got this big grant. And then it was like Bibliophily all the time. And then COVID hit. For There were months where I was working from home, and I couldn't have access to the physical collection. Um, and that was really hard. And I sort of did what I could. But I swear, right. like, you weren't going to like slip a manuscript in the bag and uh, surreptitiously scoot your way out. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> to said all the listeners, I'm not recommending that you do this, nor would I suggest that you try it. No, no, it would be very bad. But I missed but I missed I missed the collection a lot. Um, and so it was March of 2020 when they sent us home. And then in January of 2021, they said, you can come back once a week. So that was when I was like, well, if they're going to let me in once a week, I'm going to make it worth my while. And I'm going to make it worth everybody's while. Because at that point, everybody was like, I miss being with the books. And I'm like, well, I'm going to show you a book once a week. So that's when I started doing my 30 minute show and tell. And actually, that was really, whereas before COVID, I did work with the collections. It wasn't something that I did every day. I didn't have my hands on books every day. But then coming back and doing that once a week, it was like it was like I can I have something to look forward to. Like Mondays, I would be like, yeah, I get to go in and I get to touch a book and it's great. Then again, like things shifted and we had had um, student workers who were doing actually doing an amazing job with the social media. Um, but then it was really it was made clear that you know, so this sort of post-COVID coming back, we weren't going to be able to hire students to do the social media. So I was like, I will do the social media because it seems to fall under my remit as curator of digital research services. And I started making more of the video orientations. So today I have a big book here next to me. I have two other little books. Um, and there were three books that I had in earlier that I made video orientations of that I'll eventually put on social media. the video orientations stay tuned for those and also you have recently started your own podcast I did I did I did start a podcast <laughs> it's called inside my favorite manuscript and it's me and my best friend whose name is Lindsay uh, and Lindsay is not a manuscripts quote-unquote manuscripts person but she's mostly the way I think of it is it's like she's the every every person um, and so she asks questions of the people that we interview that I would not think to ask. And it's really a lot of fun. And if anyone listening would like to come and talk about your favorite manuscript, let me know. And either of you <laughs> would be very welcome to come on and, and also talk about the manuscript you love. And it does so, not have to be a manuscript that you know very well. 
What if you don't have a current favorite manuscript? Can you be like inside my current manuscript hyperfixation? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hyperfixations are more than welcome. And, and even, even the first, uh, Ali Alvis was our first uh, episode and she talked about two manuscripts that were sort of are contrasting. And Lisa Fagan Davis is our second episode and she talked about three. Uh, so I'm trying to sort of limit that, but you can, if you want to, I, honestly, like you can talk about whatever you want, you know, if it's not real, it's a book in a, in a video game. Okay. We can talk about a book in a video game. That leads into, I think some of the questions that Caitlin and I had about Ooh. fan culture. Yeah. So, so we're thinking about, you know, you work with manuscripts, you work with a lot of traditional manuscript studies, but you make a lot of, there, there are so many ways to make connections between traditional manuscript studies and pop culture or manuscripts presence in pop culture or the ways that different forms of pop culture will represent things that are adjacent to manuscripts or manuscript studies. Um, and I guess we're just sort of interested in how you think about that, how you make those connections, and then as well how you're ba balancing sort of yourself as a scholar and then also yourself as a fan um, and I'm thinking particularly of the uh, Jedi Manuscripts project that you did with Brandon Hawk as one of those. There's connections here and there's a, a balance here. Yeah. Of, of the force. Yes. <laughs> the balance of the force. I've been involved in like Star Wars fandom for a number of years. So I was sort of doing these things in parallel. So I was I was interested in in all the manuscript stuff. And then I'm doing my Star Wars stuff. I'm, you know, fanfic and fan art and all this stuff. I, I actually started a, a Tumblr account for the Schoenberg Institute for Manuscript Studies pretty early on in like 2014, 2015. I was already on Tumblr because I had my MCU uh, Tumblr. And so when it's like, let's get on social media, I'm like, I'll do a Twitter and I'll do a Tumblr because Tumblr is really like a fandom kind of space. And I was already in this fandom space. I thought of it as like manuscripts fandom. Like, why are we here? Why are people following this account? Because they think manuscripts are cool. And then I got more heavily into fandom with Star Wars. And then it wasn't until The Last Jedi uh, came out. And, you know, I remember sitting in the theater and like thinking like, oh, like, oh my God, there's like these manuscripts. Like, and you probably have the same reaction. There, there were right? astronomical diagrams. There, you know, what's on them? Yeah, like exactly. It was like, wow, that's great. And so I remember I started tweeting about it. And then I saw that this guy, Brandon Hawk, who I didn't know Brandon Hawk, uh, was also tweeting about it. And then we're like, oh no. And then we ended up being at Kalamazoo, which is Kalamazoo is the big, the international Congress on Medieval Studies, ICMS. Yes. 3,000 person strong <laughs> party in Kalamazoo, and, Michigan. <laughs> and I remember we met for lunch and we were both like, we want to know what are these manuscripts? How do they relate to Star Wars? But also how do they relate to manuscripts that, that we know? And so I was like, why don't you come to Penn for a day? And we will we'll make videos where we like compare the what we see in Star Wars and in the star in the art book to the manuscripts in our collection. You know, we, we obviously we like did a lot of work before we figured out what we were gonna look at. And then we spent the day in a studio on the I think it's on the third floor. And we had a green screen behind it. And so we were able to put in, I think if you if you go to YouTube, the videos are all there. Um, and we've got like Tatooine behind us. It was great and it was really fun to cross those streams, right? To be like, I love Star Wars and I love manuscripts 
And it turns out I also love Brandon Hawk. Like he's just fantastic. And I'm, I'm very fond and we still, we've actually done more work with this. Like we've presented a couple more times, um, expanding the work. Like there was another manuscript that showed up in the, um, the rise of Skywalker. So I think we're going to keep going with this. The other, you know, the other project that I've been working on that sort of is in the same space is in fact, my books of hours, uh, work. So I have a couple of pieces I've done on books of hours as transformative works. And that actually, that came from a completely different place where I was looking at digitized images through a bunch of different frames. So that's where I get my uncanny valley um, thing and my like zombie thing. And so I was looking at all of these and I was like, well, what about transformative works as a frame for digitized objects? Cause you're literally transforming them. I should go back to that because I never actually went very far that way. Oh, you should go back to that. I think that would be, I think that would be interesting, but instead I sort of got caught on this thing, but what about manuscripts themselves as transformative works? We were talking about at the beginning of this about how people personalize manuscripts and thinking about what a transformative work is, especially in not only the transformation, but like a fan work, which is you're doing a thing because explicitly because you love it, because you care about it. Like that's what fan, the fan part is. Um, and I always cite there's this uh, article by Anna Wilson about affection as a part of that. And so Actually, the first manuscript that I tried this with was um, one from our collection, which is LJS 101, mm -hmm. which is a um, 9th and 11th century Carolingian manuscript that is sort of part of its 9th century and part of its 11th century, and there were changes made. And But I was missing this, this sort of affection. I, I actually presented on this at Leeds, and at the end, I was like, I can't say that this is like a fandom transformative work because I can't say with any kind of certainty that that the people who did these things did it because they had affection of any kind mm -hmm. and then I was I think I was um watching Will Knoll give a lecture about books of hours and it I had this like epiphany I was like what is like the genre of books that I can point to from the middle ages that I can say with any kind of certainty that the people who had them made and used them had affection of some sort as their sort of central thing of it. And it's like, well, it's books of hours because they're, I mean, it's religious affection, right? Because it's really centered about like, I love Jesus and I love Mary. And so I'm having this book made and I was like, well, that's really great. And so then I've sort of done more of this looking at books as transformative works um, books of hours of transformative works. Can I just ask what a transformative work is? I should look up the official definition, but it's basically a work that takes a work from a canon. Let's say Star Wars. I'm going to say, I'm going to take Han Solo and I'm going to take Luke and Leia. So I'm going to write a story about what happened to them after the Return of the Jedi. They go on an adventure. That is a transformative work because I'm taking these characters and the world that they live in, and I am making my own story. Um, it would also be if I, I write a story where um, Darth Vader doesn't die at the end. So comes, medieval, like Sir Orfeo kind of thing. Yeah, Orpheus actually comes back with his wife, and everything's okay. And everything's okay, right? So that <laughs> that's a John Lydgate shows up on the Pilgrim's ride home from Canterbury. So that's, or even like um, he went to hell. He followed Virgil to hell. 
Dante. Dante, right? Like Dante's Inferno. Like, yeah, what is Dante's Divine Comedy if not fan? It's fan fan fiction. It's a transformative work. And oh, and actually it's interesting with the books, the books of hours as a transformative work. When I first got this idea, I I talked it over with Nick Herman, who is our, uh, the Sims curator of manuscripts. He's done a lot of work on books of hours, right? Because he's an art historian in the Middle Ages. And so there's a lot of um, books of hours. And so I actually sat down with him when I first had this idea, just to make sure I wasn't like totally off my rocker because I'm I have constant fear that I'm like totally off my rocker. And he listened to me and he was like, you know what? Books of hours, it's not like they sprouted up all on their own. They were actually based on um, like the, so I've got this breviary here next to me. I'm just tapping this huge book. (laughs) I I can't see it, but I'm picturing it. (laughs) Can you hear the book? I can't hear it. Yeah. So the breviary is the book that the monks and nuns would use to um, do their hours of the day. So they have prayers that they do at different hours over the course of the day and then overnight. And that's what books of hours are based on. It was a way for secular people to incorporate this part of worship into their daily lives. And so it was sort of the slow thing of coming out from, from the religious to secular. And that is a transformation. Well, I've got a I've got a season two of Inside My Favorite Manuscript idea for you, where you that's going to put all the pieces together. You have people use VC Editor to build their own manuscripts and then discuss them with you on Inside My Favorite Manuscript. But it's like inside my manuscript, right? Like inside mine that I created. Thanks for listening to Coding Codices, a podcast from the Digital Medievalist Postgraduate Community. Thank you so much to Dot for joining Island and I in this just fantastic and so fun conversation. You can find Dot in various places on the internet at Leoba uh, and also via pen. Who knows which places those will be one week from now. You can catch up on Coding Codices at our website, podcast.digitalmedievalist.org, or get in touch with us at dmpostgrads at gmail.com.